Okay, um, welcome to Jews and Food. And I think it's appropriate that we have lots of food on the table. So, and I um, am very excited that you're all here with me. Um, they tell a joke. Oh, so I have a few jokes to tell. All right, we'll line them up. The joke goes that there was a Frenchman, an Italian, and a Jew that end up in heaven at the same time. How did they end up in heaven at the same time? Who knows? Oh, you may have heard me say this. High holidays at the service. All right. Pretend, pretend it's the first time. Perfect. Good. So, and they, so they all come up and they say, here's how we're going to do it. Here are your choices. You can either... Hold on, what are the options? You can either, I'm trying to reimagine this joke. You can either go down the elevator to purgatory or, (laughs) hold on, or, ah, alternative is, no, I don't know what the other alternative, there's something. It's, It's one thing, or maybe it's purgatory, or the other thing is, um, the uh, they say to the Frenchman, we're gonna uh, for one hour we're gonna dip you into a pot of what Italians like to eat. Uh, sorry, what a French like to eat um, fondue. fondue, some hot fondue, whatever it is. After that, you're out, and then you and then you have like paradise and heaven for the remainder. So the fellow says, "Oh, I can't handle that type of torture. Just send me down, and I'll take whatever whatever's waiting for me on the on the, on the elevator down." Fine. Italian, they say the same thing. Um, we'll offer you to, um, we'll offer you to, uh, um, you know, to either go, either go down, or you can stay in heaven. But one hour a day, you're going to be dropped into a minestrone soup, hot boiling minestrone soup. He says, "No, I can't take the pain. I'm going to go down. We'll, we'll, we'll take whatever happens there." They offer the same to a Jew every day, 5 p.m. Um, hot chicken matzo ball soup. Uh, um, you know, for one hour a day, or you go down. He says, "I'll take the soup. I'll take, I'll take that. I'll take the heaven and the soup option." The other guys look at him and say, "What? You're like you're the least pain tolerant of us all." He says, "Look, I know how Jewish food works. Five o'clock is not five o'clock, and the soup is never hot." Like, yeah, that was the punch. That was the punch. Then. Now the other, the other uh, joke that I wanted to begin with, I want to lead with. Hey, Ellie, how was that? Um, was the one about Jews and Chinese food. You know this one, right? Jews have been around for 3,300 years. The Chinese have been around for, I don't know, 2,500 years. Those 800 years from at when Judaism started to when the Chi- uh, you know, China started. So those 800 years without Chinese food, we call it the Dark Ages. That's the other joke. Okay. I thought so, it was called takeout. And, right. Well, there is no takeout if there is no Chinese food. Um, it's... Depends on, you know, the space-time continuum. Oh, right. <laughs> I got to get my flux capacitor ready. Okay, so the goal of this, uh, these conversations is to explore the relationship between um, Jews and food, or really more, more uh, precisely, Judaism and food, and to really explore, like, what is, what is the connection with, with food um, where does it come from? What's it about? And what is the deeper significance of these relationships? Um, tonight's session is entitled, In the Beginning, There Was Supper. In the beginning, there was supper. So let's talk about origins of food and origins of really obsession with food. So when you think about Torah, when you think about um, the origin stories, let's just have an open conversation for a second. Where is the first time food is mentioned? In the beginning? 
uh, at right Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. The ver- listen to this. The very first mitzvah that they get is about food, about what to eat and what not to eat. It's crazy when you think of it that way, right? We think about food as being like a modern obsession or a modern thing that we. But literally, the very first, um, so the first mitzvah, but the first one that like was high stakes and 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 human beings fell was the mitzvah regarding eating. It's a big deal. Take a look. We're going to start with the first text. Um, you know what? Let's just we'll just go around. Uh, Jamie, if you don't mind reading text number one, um, it's from the Torah, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse sixteen and fifteen and sixteen. Do you want me to read the just, part in, that's darkened? No, 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 just the text where it says 15, 16. All right. Now the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every, of every tree, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. Freely eat. Yes, and that is, of course, the setup for, however, of the tr- of the tree, uh, of the fruit of the tree of the of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat. Good. Now, let's take a look at um, text number two. This is coming from the Gemara from the Talmud uh, in Tractate Sanhedrin, and um, it points out how food was at the very top of the list of what God commanded, Hashem commanded um, Adam and Eve. Uh, no, just just a rabbi's thought. A rabbi's thought. The children of Noah were taught seven precepts. Social laws to refrain from blasphemy, idolatry, adultery, bloodshed, robbery, and eating flesh cut from a living animal. Where do we know this from? Rabbi Johanan quoted the verse, And the Lord God commanded of the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden, he may do eat. And he commanded refers to the observance of social laws as it is written. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Okay, so what we see from here is this idea that of the very first commandments um, to Adam and Eve are the ones about food, um, um, social laws about, about not eating flesh cut from a living animal. Again, these ideas of focusing on food. All right, we're going to do one more text in this uh, in this set. This is text number three, and um, really, it's about the um, the centrality of food. Meraf, please read this one. Text number three, where it says, "And God." God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden to inform him that his purpose was to work and guard, implying that there was an imperative command as well as something to withhold from. The work was to eat from the trees permissible to him, and the guarding was to take care that he should not eat from what he has been warned about. As if to test him, God came to see if man could observe his commandments or not. Therefore, he placed him there. What's interesting is, according to the Barbanel, who was a great medieval commentary, what we see is something fascinating. He says, the Torah says that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. La'avda or la'shamra. La'avda means to work it. La'shamra means to guard it. And typically we understand la'avda is a positive commandment to do things. And la'shamra means not to, to refrain from things. 
Barbara says, what's the doing, what's the not doing? The doing is to eat from certain things, and the not doing is to not eat from certain things. In other words, a very litmus test of will you follow God's command or not kind of circles around food, about what we're eating and what we're not eating. So it's almost like the original relationship with God is about really about the dinner table. It's about what we're going to eat and what we're not going to eat. It's Hashem is saying, like, how do I know if you, again, I'm paraphrasing, how do I, I don't know if you love me, I don't know if you care about me, how do I know if you're going to follow me? I'm going to give you a test, and what is a test? This is what you should eat, this is what you should not eat, and let's see if you can follow that. But it's, it's interesting that the, that the relationship is framed around food. Now, that is um, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. So it all begins with food. And then the next generation, you have Cain and Abel, Cain and Hevel. And they get into a big fight. And what was the fight about? Their offerings. But what do they offer? Food, right? One offers, um, one offers um, grain and one offers an animal, right? Right. One is, one is meat and one is vegetarian. But the point is, again, it's about food. And yes, I understand it's in the context of a carbon of an offering, but it's still, it's still edible stuff. Then you have this week's Torah portion. Kind of when you go through the stories, it's amazing. Then you have Noah, right? And what happens with Noah? So he builds an ark, and he goes on the ark. He goes on the table with him, his family, the animals, and lots of food. He gets off, off the teva. After the flood is over, about a year later, he gets off the ark. And what happens? It's the plants of vineyard. And he drinks, and he gets drunk. Again, food. It's incredible. Now, I, I, I think, you know, part of it is, yeah, human beings, we do a lot of eating. That's kind of like part of our story is we eat a lot. But there is, clearly the Torah is trying to, uh, to, to, to point out some things here. Now, the next story, major story, I would say, is uh, Avram and Sarah, Abram and Sarah. Now, what's their connection with food? Remember they planted an eshel? It says they planted an eshel, um, which I'll translate in a second. And that's where they taught people about monotheism. They taught people about Hashem. What's the eshel? Eshel literally means, well... It could mean um, an inn. It could mean an orchard. Eshel is also an acronym for Achila, Shtia, and Lina, which means eating, um, drinking, and Lina is kind of like resting, dwelling, staying over. You know, basically an Airbnb, uh, not air, a B and B, a bed and breakfast. And again, they got people with food. The Gemara famously says, the Talmud says that when people came over, Avram served them food. And then they said, thank you so much for the meal. He says, don't thank me, thank Hashem. Who's Hashem? He says, let me tell you about Hashem. And if they refused, he would pull out the bill. He would say, you owe me a lot of money. And that's, that's the way he, t- and then people said, okay, I'll thank God if to avoid this. And even though it was a little bit of coercion, it was just, it was really about the education, educating through, essentially through food. Um, and then you have, you know, fast forward a little bit, you have Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau. And what happens? What's their connection with food? Well, think about it. How does Yaakov get the birthright? What's the story? Esau is hunting. Right, exactly. He's hungry. He's, he's a hard day's work hunting in the field. He comes in. He's starving. He says to his brother, give me food. His brother says, I'll give you food if you sell me your birthright. He sells it for beans or whatever it was. Lentils. Lentils. Right? lentils. He sells it for a pot of, for a bowl of lentil soup or whatever. Um, and then you have, and this is the kicker. We're going to focus on this for a second. The kicker is, remember when Yitzchak, their father, wants to, wants to bless Esav? 
uh, the older twin, and then Yaakov takes the blessing. Well, how does he set up the blessing? He says, I'll bless you if... Yeah. What? Hunt. Give me a meal. Hunt an animal. Prepare the animal the way I like it. Give me food, and then I'll bless you. Again, the blessing, which sounds very strange. A spiritual, you would think, a spiritual blessing or a blessing, and the whole focus, it's centered around food. Sounds a little bit strange. Take a look. We have this text over here. Now. Yeah. You're saying, uh, may I make a comment? Absolutely. Okay. So you're, it seems as though your premise of the is that this is a surprising and astonishing uh, uh, collection of events that surround food so early and fundamental. Um, next to, you can go you know, three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. So, you know, air, the, uh, Hashem breathed life into right. Adam. So there, and prior to that, separated the, the water. Right. Uh, doesn't talk, talk too much about drinking water. Well, there's a lot of wells. No, to your point, there are a lot of discussion about wells. But sure. In, in, in the actual, uh, so to me, it seems fundamental that you would, that this would be, we're starting, mm-hmm. and this would be fundamental. And uh, as if we're considering primitive uh, culture, this is having food is preoccupies so much of their waking hour. Sure. So no, and you're you're absolutely makes, correct. In other words, you're saying it's make total make total sense because what do people do? They're making food. They're eating food. Or they're thinking about food. So that's you know, and and that covers a lot of the day, and that's true. What I would say, and, and I, I agree with everything that you said, but in addition to that, um, I would say that the fact that it's in Torah, Torah is a book of, of instruction, mm-hmm. the fact that we have you know, these elements of food in Torah indicates that it's not just a reflection of, of human need and human behavior, but it's also an indication that there are certain things that are, that are at play over here, and we're going to explore some, some hopefully some deeper yes. themes. Um, in text number four, Maki, if you don't mind reading text number four, this is about Yaakov and Esau and Yitzhak and the blessing. So now sharpen your implements, your sword, and take your bow and go forth to the field and hunt game for me. And make for me tasty foods as I like and bring them to me and I will eat in order that my soul will bless you before I die. Thank you. And now this is very specific. Yitzhak says, Isaac says, um, uh, make tasty foods and I will eat in order that my soul will bless you before I die. And it's interesting that he uses the word nafshi, soul. It's like, after I eat, then my soul will bless you. After my body is satisfied, then my soul is going to kick in. What's the connection? Makesha. So let's take a look at Rabbeinu Bachia. Rabbeinu Bachia actually gives an explanation, beautiful explanation. This is text number five. I'll read this one. Um, he explains like this. In requesting tasty food, Yitzchak's intention, Isaac's intention, was not to pleasure his body and palate. Rather, it was to ensure that he would be in a good mood and satisfied. For when the physical energy is strengthened, it arouses the strength in the soul. And from this strength of soul, divine inspiration could descend upon him. The reason why he asked for food to uplift his spirit and not the playing of a harp 
as was the custom of the prophets, was because he was about to confer blessings of physical goodness, dew of the heavens and the fats of the land and the plentiful grain and grapes. He therefore wanted, that's uh, a typo, the source of his joy to be the same kind of thing as that which he wished to bless his son with. So he says a few points. Number one, and I think this is a, you know, a truth that we can all relate to, food makes people happy. Food puts people in a good mood. That's just the reality. Um, so food puts people in a good mood. Um, in order to bless, for the soul to be excited, it's almost like he's saying the body has to be excited. And although the Nevi'im, the prophets, had used to listen to music to inspire their body and soul, he wanted food. Why food? Because he was going to give um, blessings of a physical nature, of physical bounty. So he wanted that type of physical um, you know, goodness and, and, and pleasure. This is also, by the way, um, a reason why we, um, we have food at, at, uh, at other types of occasions. Text 6, I'll read this one as well. Um, the Moshe of Zikanim writes, Therefore it is customary to expound on Torah at a mitzvah celebration, because from the joy of the meal the divine rests upon them. In other words, when you're having a su'udat mitzvah, uh, a, a mitzvah feast, like for example, if there's a simcha, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a bris, an absharnish, whatever, a fabrengen. So at that setting with the food, you share Torah. Why? Because your Torah is going to be better. Your Torah is going to be enhanced. Can you imagine how beautiful the Torah is going to be when you're in a good mood, when you're happy? It's going to be even better than when you're, you know, when you're just sitting in the base medrash and studying, etc. So that is something about food. Now, there are, um, what's, so again, what's clear is that Torah is at the center of many episodes. And again, although that reflects human condition and human reality, the fact that Torah goes out of its way to mention that implies that there is some sort of a lesson involved in that. Um, a few other examples, by the way. So it says when Joseph, Yosef and his brothers reunited, right, the first time they all sat together after 20 plus years, he put them around the table and they had a meal together. Um, it also said, what was the last thing the, the Jewish people did in Egypt before the Exodus? They had the last supper. Sorry, it wasn't called that. They had a meal right before uh, the, the night of the Exodus. Uh, they had a Seder. Yeah. Matzos, Mrerim, Yechlu, Karim Pesach, Matzamar. They had the real deal. Um, when it came to the sin of the golden calf, it says the Chet Egel, they made, they made the golden calf. They ate and drank. Again, there's something about food that is uh, in all of these stories. So clearly there's a strong biblical association. Now, in addition to the Torah's almost obsession, I'm probably overstating that, but the Torah's focus on food, in addition to that, we know that within Judaism, um, food plays a major role in all the holidays. So Rosh Hashanah, apples and honey. Yom Kippur, we don't eat. So we're thinking about food all day. Then you have sukkahs, it's not what you eat, it's where you eat it. Then you have, I guess, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is oil. And then foods fried in oil. Then you have uh, Purim, which would be hamantashen and, you know, other things. Alcohol. Alcohol, exactly. Then you have Pesach, matzah, and, you know, and no chametz. You have Shavuos, dairy. Every, every holiday is associated with food. So clearly the obsession is real. And the question is, what's the deal with all the food? So I want to get... Yes, all, all the simanim, right? All of those associations and oh, I don't know what the right word is. Omens? Uh, omen sounds too weird. Um, symbols. Symbols. There you go. Symbols, right? All associated with food. 
eat simis for this, eat uh, pomegranate for that, eat. And second day, don't forget your new fruits. It's like always, there's always some. Right. Right. Specific foods we eat in the morning. Exactly. And people bring to the Shiva house, they're bringing food. Right. Yeah. So clearly there's something. And so to, we have, again, this, this, this series has four parts. In each session, we're going to deal with a different angle. Today, I want to speak about food according to Kabbalah, according to Jewish mystical thought. We're going to go to the Arizal, we're going to go to the Baal Shem Tov, we're going to go to the Antar Rebbe, we're going to go through Hasidic masters and really explain, and, and, and Jewish mystical thought, and really get into what's this, what about the soul of food. So the first thing is, yeah, you want to say something? No. Okay. So the first thing um, is set it, to set this up. We have a Pasuk, we have a verse in Devarim in Deuteronomy. It really outlines where we're headed with this. And it was the source also of one of a, of a memorable um, Wendy's ad. No, not Wendy's ad. Whatever. Some other, other fast food place ad back in the day. The text I'm referring to is text 7. I will read this also. Um, Moshe, Moses is speaking to the Jewish people shortly before his passing. And he says the following. So it's kind of in the middle of a sentence here. So that he would make you know. In other words, Hashem, God, did all these things so that he would make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of the Lord does man live. Not on bread alone does man live. That was the, the, the ad. Right? Man, does, man does not live on bread alone. You've got to have some meat in your sandwich. <laughs> buy whatever. Buy the burger. That was the ad. So man does not live on bread alone, or by bread alone, but rather, but rather from whatever comes out of Hashem's mouth, a person will live. It's interesting. What does that mean? question is, what does that mean? So Kabbalah explains this in a very powerful way, and we're going to read some Arizal. Straight up Arizal. Now who is the Arizal? The Arizal was Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, known in, I guess, English as Isaac Luria. Um, he lived in the 1600s. He was a Kabbalist, 15, sorry, 1500s, 1500s, 1600s. He was a Kabbalist uh, who lived in the city of Tzfat. Tzfat? Yeah, and he was one of, the, one of the most famous mystics of all time. Um, to this very... Well, I think you're talking about the Lechadodi. Oh. But that's one of his colleagues, Shlomo Al- Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz. If you look at the Lechadodi, unless you're talking about something else. Oh, the Arizal did, no, you're right. The Arizal did put his name in a few things. All of the poems um, by the meals that we say. Sada um, Lusudasa. There's one there that says, Ani Yitzchak Yes, yes. Asada Lusudasa. Yeah, yeah, no, it's straight up. Let's pull it out. I got my benches right here. One of the conveniences of doing a class in my house is I got, we got access to stuff. Yeah, so this is um, Ani Yitzchak Luria. Yeah. Right there. If you look at the, if you look at the paragraphs, Ani Yitzchak Luria. 
Is yeah. that the end or does it yeah, end? I see. Mm, well, it ends there, but it's close. I thought it was in the actual Ani Yitzchak. If you look at the first letters, you read them down. Okay. Ani Yitzchak Lur. Okay. Thank you. Check it out. Anyway, this is not the only place, but the, the, the mystics used to code their names. The Lechadodi famously says, um, Shlomo HaLevi. Inside Lechadodi, except for the first one, Shomer Bezachar, etc. Shlomo HaLevi. Um, he was a Kabbalist. So here we go. So the Arizal wrote a book called Lekutei Torah, not to be confused with the book called Lekutei Torah that was written by the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. Um, but he also wrote Lekutei Torah. So let's take a look at how he frames reality. And I, I'm going to read this, text number eight. For everything in the world has energy. Just like a person has a body and soul, so it is with all things. The Torah itself as well has a body and soul, in the sense that our sages have explained the bodies of the Torah. So basically everything has the physical, um, uh, I mean, Rabbi Wolf was speaking about this a little bit last night. So everything has a physical component and then the energy within it. So you have the Torah and then the explanations, the Torah will be the body and the explanation will be the soul. Likewise, and here's where it gets interesting, food, he says, Kufei Torah means the letters, the physical structure of Torah. Fan is a font. Oh, is that how you say font in Hebrew? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, so I guess it's related to the architecture, the, the, the body, the structure. Okay. Yeah, so you have the structure of Torah and then you have the meaning. So likewise, he says, food and bread that a person eats as energy, which is the words which God uttered at the time of creation, when he commanded that the earth give forth such and such. In other words, if you're eating bread, so Hashem said, let the earth sprout vegetation. So the energy, the, the, the words of Hashem that are manifest in the food, so that's, that's the, so there's the food and then the energy within the food. The, this breath of speech is significant. Like the breath of a, the, sorry, like the breath a person exhales when speaking. This breath is a part of his very life force, proof being that when a soul departs, he is left without breath and without speech. This is how God's creative speech is as well. Every word spoken was vested into the created objects and remained there to give it vitality and grow it. Thus, the food we eat has a physical aspect, which nourishes the physical body, and a spiritual component, which gives life to the person's soul. That line right there is key. He says, when it comes to food, food itself has a body and a soul. The body of food nourishes our body, body to body. The soul of the food nourishes our soul. Body nourishes body. See, typically we think that the energy of the food is nourishing our body. He says that's still the body of the food. There's two components of the food. The, there's the physical component and the, and the spiritual component. The physical component of the food satisfies our body. The spiritual component of food gives life to a person's soul. Now, this now answers the question of how physical bread can sustain the spiritual soul to the degree that if someone refrained from eating food for several days, as you mentioned, they would starve and their soul would leave their body. How can bread sustain something spiritual like the soul? He's saying with this insight that food also has a soul, we can understand why it is that you need food to live. Because why would food compromise the soul? The answer is, on the next page, he says that there is vitality within the food, its spiritual component, which sustains the spiritual soul of the person. Indeed, the only sustenance for the soul is the spiritual energy in the food. 
This is the meaning behind the verse, not by bread alone shall man live, but by all that leaves the mouth of God shall man live, referring to the divine words that sustain the food he eats. He says like this, you know, the, the Pasuk, it's, it's so fascinating because, you know, that Arisa lived, you know, I don't know, a few hundred years ago, and yet he gives such a beautiful explanation in the Pasuk, in the verse, that is actually aligned with the very words of the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, the verse says, Loi al-halechem levado adam. Man does not live by bread alone. Rather, ki akol pi Hashem. But rather by the word of Hashem, the utterance of Hashem. He says, you know what that is? When Hashem said, let the earth grow vegetation. That's the word of Hashem that's embedded in the food, the spirit of the food, the energy of the food that enlivens the person. In other words, when you have something, a food in front of you, I don't have food in front of me, Food right here. You have food in front of you. There's the physical part of the food that sustains the body. The spiritual mites of Hashem. When Hashem said, let there be kugel, as it were. Not, not literally, but, you know, through some uh, derivation. That's the soul of food, and that's the soul that sustains the soul. All right. Which, again, aligns word for word with the Pasuk. How else do you... Ex- it's crazy. Not crazy, crazy, but it's wild that the Kabbalah, Kabbalistic explanation, is more aligned with pshat than pshat, with the simple meaning than the simple meaning is. Simply, what does it mean on the... Man does not live by, on bread alone, but rather by the utterance of Hashem. What utterance? What are we talking about? The Arizal has a simple answer. The utterance that made the food. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful, because that's the whole... The Arizal, you know, Luriana Kabbalah loves to talk about this stuff. It says, stones have souls. Even inanimate objects have, sto- have stones. Ha- sorry, have stones. Have souls. Um, okay, so that is, um, that's a major idea when it comes to food. The food is not just a physical thing that we consume, but food has a spiritual energy that enlivens our soul, which means that eating is not just a physical experience. It's also a spiritual experience. It's an experience in which we enliven the soul. But herein, now, we get to a major question. And the question is asked by the Alter Rebbe. So we're kind of going through the mystical tradition here. So that's a statement from the Arizal. The problem is, the Alter Rebbe asked this question. Again, Alter Rebbe was, he was born in 1745, passed away in 1812. So he's a little bit, you know, a century and a half after the Arizal. And he poses a major question to this idea. He says, look, you're telling me that the physical part of the food sustains the body, whereas the soul of the food sustains your soul. Makes no sense, he says. Why? How could the soul in food sustain my soul? Anything that's sustaining means that it's, that's, it's from a higher level, right? The, right? You would think something that has the advantage helps the one that has the disadvantage. So how does it make sense that the soul of a lower form of life, and I'll explain this in a second, how does that make sense that a lower soul would sustain a human soul. That doesn't make any sense. Why would a human soul need a lower form of life, a lower soul, to sustain it? On the contrary, it should need me. How does that make any sense? that make sense? We, Darizal says, we just read it. Darizal says that the human beings for the body needs the body, the food, the soul. Our soul needs the soul of the food. And the author Rebbe says, makes no sense. Let's read the question. It's not my question. It's his question. Text 9. However, it needs to be understood 
And it's so funny because he, he asked this question in his own book, also called the Kutte Torah. Same, same name, but two different, two different works. Anyway, he says, however, it needs to be understood. In the divine, per- sorry, in the person, there's also the divine speech of let us make man. So why does he, the person, need to receive his life force from bread in which invested, which, in which is invested the enlivening force derived from the statement, let the earth sprout? He's asking, from, from the perspective of divine utterance to divine utterance, we also have a divine utterance. Nasa Adam Betzalmenu Kidmusenu, let's make man. Let us make man. So why would the word of God, let us make man, require sustenance from the word, let the earth sprout vegetation. Why would one need the other? Especially if you consider that one is higher than the other. And let, me, let me establish that for a second. It's not only a mystical, this is also Jewish philosophy, speaks extensively about this, that there are four, um, I think the word that's used in science is taxonomy, I don't know, of existence or of the universe. Six. What is it? Six. What? Taxons. Sorry. I'm a biology teacher. I have to. Oh, go ahead. Archaebacteria, eubacteria, fungi, protists, animal, plant. Oh, that is way more complex than I was thinking. That's that's a much more elaborate taxonomy. Oh, that's so funny. What are the odds? So, all right. Well, let me introduce some pseudoscience then. <laughs> some non-legitimate taxonomy. Um, so, we could stick with the Jewish sources. Basically... There, is, there are various forms of life. There's what's called domain, which literally means silent, but it refers to inanimate. I heard recently that the Rebbe didn't like that word, that translation of inanimate. Somebody told me that. When they were translating Tanya for the first time into English, so the translator was translating this. I know I'm saying something and then analyzing at the same time. I apologize if it's going to confuse you. Do it all the time. I that that is actually true, and so maybe I rescind my apology. And this is who I am. I'm just embracing myself. So uh, the author, so the, so Tanya talks about these four levels. I'll just state them quickly. Domeim, Someach, Chaim, Medaber. Inan, well, okay. Domeim, yeah, inanimate. Right. Thank you. Someach is vegetation. We'll do the for all. Um, Chai is animal. And then I think I did three quotes there, which is weird. And then the fourth one is Medaber is the human being, is human. So we have Domeim, Tzomei, Medaber, inanimate, vegetation, animal, and human. When the translator translated Domeim as inanimate, the Rebbe crossed it out and he wrote silent. Domeim literally means, is that true in modern Hebrew? Domeim means quiet, silent. Yeah. Silent. So it's silent. In other words, when you look at a stone, it doesn't say it. Table. Doesn't speak. Doesn't move. Doesn't grow. Now, I, the reason why my understanding is why the Rebbe didn't like the translation of inanimate is that that implies that there's no energy in it. And that's the whole point. Kabbalah says, no, there is a soul in this st- seemingly still creature or being, sorry, being. There is life inside of it, even though its form of life is one that doesn't move, doesn't walk, doesn't crawl, doesn't grow, doesn't get smaller. It just, it stays put the way it is, but it still has life. The point of all this is to say that there are various forms of life. There's domain, still life. There's tomeach, life that remains rooted but grows. Chai, which grows and moves laterally. And then there's, of course, 
medaber human beings that have all of the above plus creative intelligence and the ability to communicate and everything that that brings to the table. So essentially the Antarab's question in text number nine is why is it that the human soul requires energy from a soul that is beneath it in level? It doesn't make sense. Why would you need something less than you to sustain you? It seems now we take that for granted. Of course, to live, we need food and food comes from the ground or wherever it comes from or walks you know, on the earth. But um, how does it make sense? So to understand this, we need to get um, even deeper into, we need to do a deeper dive into Kabbalah. And let's take a look at, uh, at text number 10, which is fascinating. Reish is Rabbah, is Medrash. Medrash says the following. Rabbi Yehuda bar, uh, bar Simon, actually, yeah, Simon, Bar Simon taught. It does not state that there should be night, rather, and it was night. Okay. Last week, when we read the Torah, uh, opening Torah portion, so Hashem says, Vayomer Lekim, and God said, Yihiar, let there be light. Vayihiar, and there was light. God separated between light and darkness. Vayihiar, Vayiboker, Yom Rishon, evening and morning, day one. But it never says He created evening. He created light. He separated light and darkness, but it never says He created darkness. What's going on? We derive from here that there was time beforehand. Rabbi Boa states, this teaches us, yeah, it's wild, that he created and destroyed worlds. Not words. Nah, it's a typo. Worlds. Olamot. Worlds. Before God created our world, saying, this one I like, those I do not favor. In the, in the Hebrew, it's bore olamot umacharivan. Plural. He created worlds and destroyed them before he settled on this one. This is a wild midrash. The idea of like Martians and like another planet. Well, I was—I thought you were going to go with uh, with the latest uh, theory. Um, there's a word for it. Shoot, um, not parallel universes, but there's another term for it that's that's kind of buzzy nowadays. It's that this is a simulation. In other words, it's one simulation of many, and there's like, or maybe that maybe maybe I'm mixing concepts, but that there's multiple like parallel things that are, and we're just one path, but it's, there's really all these other ones. Multiple universes. Multiple universes, right. So this would imply that that is okay, same idea. The, midrash, the midrash is saying that there were other realities, but it does say that God destroyed them, which would imply maybe that well, those don't, do not no longer exist. Um, but the way Kabbalah and Chassidus understands this is not necessarily literally, perfectly literally, but rather more metaphorically, well, that's, I don't want to say super, I don't want to say like exclusively metaphorically, but I guess more spiritually, and I'll explain in a moment. Basically, it all goes back, at least the way uh, the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Lur, Isaac Luria explains this, goes back to something called Shviras HaKelim, or Shvirat HaKelim. That is the shattering of the vessels. This is a major element of Lurianic Kabbalah. If you ever hear that term, Lurianic Kabbalah, fancy way of saying the Kabbalah taught by the Arizal, and one of his major themes is Shvirat HaKelim, the shattering of the vessels. Essentially, he says that there existed before our reality another world or another universe called Olam HaTohu, the world of chaos. In the world of chaos, the light was large, the vessels were small, the light shattered the vessels, and from that explosion or that shattering, our 
world was generated, our world being olam hatikun, the world of tikkun, the world of repair. We're repairing the shattered shards. Let me explain because all of that is like, we'll explain. What is the idea of light and vessel? So light and vessel is a, is a construct used in Kabbalah, but it really refers to anything that, ha- that shares its duality. So for example, you have a word, we, use, we talked about this before, body and soul. You look at a word, and it doesn't matter what word, let's just pick a, a, a simple word, dog, D-O-G. You see those letters, three letters, dog, and you're like, oh, a dog. And you start picturing a dog. Meanwhile, there's no dog, right? There's no, and all you have are three letters, which every letter is just, is just a symbol. And those are very physical symbols and markers, but in, the, in those symbols, it contains an idea, an association. So that's light and vessel. The vessel would be the letters. The light would be the message it contains. If you want to get even more, more I don't know, direct right now, I'm literally sharing words. I'm, I'm emanating, I don't know, what would it be, like vibrations of sound, sound vibrations? Your ear is picking it up. And I'm just, I'm making different sounds, but you're understanding what I'm saying. And it makes sense. And in your mind, I mean, hopefully, if all, if all goes well, this is making sense. And that means that you're interpreting these sound vibrations in a certain way. The vibration itself is the keli, is the vessel. And the meaning, the intent, is the R, is the light. Literally, Light and vessel is um, like a cup. The vessel is the cup. The light would be the liquid. So everything is light and vessel. The eye would be the vessel, and the light coming in would be, would be the, the literal light. So you always have this interplay. The reality is that if the light is too big, the vessel, is, the vessel can shatter. If you take a styrofoam cup and you hold it to a, um, I don't know, like a fire hydrant, whatever it is, it's going to shatter. It's going to shatter the cup. It's going to shatter, or even whatever this. Plastic, it's going to shatter it. If the eye is exposed to too much sunlight, the eye is going to be harmed. Um, If the heart is exposed to too much emotion, if it's too overwhelming, the heart can be overwhelmed. The mind can be overwhelmed. The eye can be overwhelmed. The body can be overwhelmed. You expose something to too much light, you think, well, a little light is great. A lot of light is even better. No, a lot of light, too much of a good thing can sometimes be too much. Remember remember old school cameras? With film? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You open up the pop up in the back, boom, there goes your roll of film. Overexposed. So you need an aperture. You need, a sh- you need it to open, to allow light. Without light, you got nothing. So you need light. But too much light, also no good. It's got to be just the right amount. A waiter that comes to your table and pours wine at dinner, great. Got to stop pouring at some point. If he keeps on pouring the whole bottle, it's now all over your clothing. So everything has to be within a measure. R and Kaylee has to be measured. Olam HaTohu, by the way, that word Tohu comes from the Torah itself. Right, The earth was chaos and void. That's what it says, chaos. Tohu is chaos. So chaos, according to Kabbalah, is when there's too much light and the vessels are not strong enough to contain the light. What happens is, and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more that we can talk about this, but just to cut it down short, the vessels shatter conceptually, these aren't physical things, but the vessels shatter, and that shattering of the vessel creates the physical substrate of our, that they form and and help shape the physical substrate of our reality. Our world, our reality is built off of the shattering of those vessels. Essentially, the idea is that if light were to diminish in a normative way, it could never go from spirituality 
to physicality. You can never manifest a table from spiritual energy. There has to be something dramatic that happens and drastic. What is the drastic thing that happens? The shattering of the vessels. Again, this requires way more elaboration to, to connect all the dots. Conceptually, to, to get physical matter from spiritual energy, there had to be something dramatic, like a, a nefilah, something that, that goes not just norm, not just in, in measure down, but something that drops very, very far. To go from ruchni to gashmi, from spiritual to physical, there has to be a, almost like a quantum leap. That quantum leap is produced by the shattering of the vessels, where the light now is taking on a different form. Now there's light embedded in these shards, in these, in these pieces of keli that are displaced. That is what brings the light down in order to produce a physical world. This reality, as I mentioned before, is called olam hatikun, and our job is tikun olam. The first, I, the first advocate of tikkun olam was not about saving the environment, was about recognizing that our job is to literally go around the world and encounter the physical stuff of the world, utilize all this stuff for something positive, and thus lift up the sparks and return them back to their holy source. To repair, imagine somebody drops something and shatters, and you're picking up the pieces and gluing them back together. That is what's going on here. By the way, this is... One way that the Arizal sought to make sense of Galut, of exile. He says, why is it that we're displaced? Why is it that we're wandering? Why is it that there's so much? Because we're literally on this hide and seek. We're literally on this seek and find mission. We're finding the sparks. We're finding the, the shattered vessels that contain these soul sparks within everything within the entire world. And the goal is to lift them up. I'm giving you like... Loriana Kabbalah, like the Arizal's entire approach, kind of like in, in, I don't know, however long this is taking, in about 10 minutes or so. So not, certainly not, my point is to say, not doing justice to it, but that's the core of the idea, yeah. I, I missed maybe something that you said earlier about going back to text nine. Yeah. Is there an answer to that? Yeah, we're getting to that right now. Oh, okay. That's literally the, the buildup to the answer. Okay. What's the answer? The answer is... Did he give his own answer? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, the shattering of the vessels, Eitzchaim. That's the Arizal, text 11. Mm-hmm. But in the interest of time, I'll let you read that uh, for homework. Okay. okay? But we're going to get to the answer, the Alter Rebbe's answer, which is text 12 in a second. So now, now that we understand the shattering of the vessels and how the shards fell into our world, etc., now we can understand something remarkable. You see, the lower something fell, the higher source it came from. This is a klal. This is a general rule in Kabbalah. The higher something is, the lower it falls. So, for example, the example uses a wall. If you have a wall that falls, right, a wall collapses, so the stones that are furthest away from the base are the ones that were highest. In other words, the highest goes the furthest. So the higher the energy the lower it falls. This is what the Alter Rebbe says to answer his question. He says like this. We talked about four levels of life. Domeim, Tzomeh, Chai, Medaber. We're Medaber. We're human beings. And the question is, why would we, why would our soul need the lower stuff? <laughs> lower? <laughs> Hold my beer. I don't know. No one says that. But, right, or whatever. Right? Lower? Not, not quite. The, the lower it is, the higher the sparks. In other words, the lower means those sparks 
when the vessel shattered, those were the ones that fell very far. The ones that fell very far are the ones that were at the top. So that the energy, the soul energy of plants and animals on one level, those energies are actually higher than the human soul. And that's why we need the food. Take a look. Not my words. This is all the Alter Rebbe. Text 12. Let's read this inside. This one we'll do inside. This will be understood according to that which is stated in many places, that the inanimate, the vegetative, and the animal classes are all sourced from the world of tohu, chaos, which preceded tikkun. However, through a series of contractions and descents, physical objects were created from them. Man, conversely, human beings, is sourced, we are sourced in tikkun, in the, in the second world, the world of repair. Since they, the other energies, lacked hit um, kalalut, they broke and descended lower than man, requiring him to refine them. So uh, this would, again, require a little bit too much um, background, but essentially the energies or the vessels or the, and the lights of tohu, of the primordial world of chaos, they didn't work together. That's why it was so chaotic. So they broke and therefore they fell lower than human beings and require us to refine them, to lift them up. But after they're refined by man, they uplift him, for their source is higher than his, as is written, by all that leaves the mouth of God shall man live. This is why, on the next page, this is why Na'ase Adam B'Tzalmenu, let us make man, was the last of the ten utterances. The other utterances, let the earth sprout, etc., come before it, for they are from the world of Tohu, which preceded Tikkun, the source of man. This is also the reason for Rabbi Nachman's retort that I did not tell you in the morning Somebody once asked him, a, Rabbi Nachman, the Gemara says, the Talmud says, somebody once asked this rabbi, Rabbi Nachman, a question in Jewish law. And he, he said, I don't know. And then later on that day, he says, here's the answer. And then he explained, how come I didn't answer you in the morning? He says, I did not tell you in the morning, for I had not yet eaten beef. <laughs> he says, he literally says, I didn't answer you because I hadn't yet had breakfast or lunch or whatever it is. For it is understood that the food also provides vitality to the, for the cognitive faculties. This is also understood in our service of Hashem, that this is the notion of refining the 288 sparks of tohu that are enclosed in physical things in ascent to tikkun, the source of the godly soul. This takes place through serving God, through the reading of Shema and, and the prayers. The vitality garnered through eating for heaven's sake is included in his declaring God's unity and the command to love him. I'm going to explain this in a moment. The emotional arousal is greater than that which the divine soul could have accomplished alone. This is due to the above-mentioned reason, the 288 sparks of Toh, which are above Tikkun, they can therefore add to the understanding and emotions of the godly soul during Shema, prayer, and the involvement in Torah and Mitzvot. This is the key of tonight's class so, and, and how we're going to end this. So therefore, I want to make sure that it's clear. Basically, the, the Alter Rebbe in the Kutte Torah, the founder of Chabad, says this following major idea about food. He says that when it comes to food, we the simple way would be to look at food as that which is beneath us, which would then evoke the question that he asked before, which is how could something lower than us give us life? And so he says the reason is because that which appears lower, which is lower on one level, actually has a greater soul, a higher energy. It's the higher energy that falls into the lowest of places. That is a chaotic energy. It's a lower, it's a higher energy. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful energy that is then, it falls into this lower place, into food, into animals, and into, into vegetation, etc. When we eat, the goal is to leverage the energy of the animal or of the, of the plant to utilize that to enhance us and to give us more vitality than the energy that we had on our own. 
we have on our own tikkun energy, which is a little bit boxed in. And the other stuff, animal energy, in a good way, has, has like powerful energy. And the goal is to integrate that power into us. And then, and here's the key, that's only step one. Step two is then to convert that energy into an expression of divine connection through davening, through studying Torah, through doing a mitzvah. And as he said, and I'm sure you saw the words that he said, even if they, were, they sounded a little esoteric, what he's saying is that when, when we eat, we can, we can learn better. When we eat, we can daven better. Why? Because the energy of the animal or the plant, the bread or whatever it is, the sushi or the... Sushi, the sushi, sushi nacho, which I love as a name. So that energy not only feeds the body, but it enhances the soul to assist in davening better, etc. Now we have to follow through in the spiritual stuff, but when we do so, we're actually integrating that energy within us. It then it gets us excited, and then it goes up to an even higher place. And that's the idea. That's the main idea of eating. Now, this brings us full circle. This brings us full circle. And when, when, what I mean by that is, we asked at the beginning of our conversation, you know, why is it that we're so obsessed with food? Why is food such an integral part of the human story from the beginning, Adam and Eve? Why is food such an integral part of the Jewish story? Why is it such a part of, you know, Jewish celebrations and Jewish holidays, etc.? And hopefully by now, the answer is clear. You see, eating is the key to our mission in life based on the Arizal. Our mission in life is to collect the sparks. Well, how do we collect the sparks and integrate the sparks and elevate the sparks? Really, I mean, you can use anything, not anything, you can use a lot of things for a mitzvah, but there's only one thing that you literally become one with that you integrate as part of your own energy that you then literally convert into spiritual deeds, and that is food. Nothing else is so integrated into us than the food that we eat. I mean, we can use leather to wrap tefillin. And by the way, this is by no means am I diminishing any other mitzvah, but I'm trying to prop up this. So we can, you can use something for a mitzvah. But it's almost like a little bit on the surface. A little bit on the surface. The one thing that we actually integrate that becomes part of our literal flesh and blood and our energy force, our energy field, is food. And so that's why, according to Kabbalah, according to Chassidus, according to Chabad philosophy, that's why eating is such a big deal. Because it really stands at the forefront of what life is about. If life is about tikkun, fixing the sparks that shattered, about lifting them up, well, the greatest arena for that to happen is food. That also explains why food is the most compli- one of the most complicated areas of life. To get right. Why? Because it's so powerful. Anything that's powerful is also going to be complicated. That's how, it's, it's tohu, it's chaotic energy. So it's easy to eat that and get chaotic also, or to lose ourselves in the food. That's because it's so powerful. But if we do it right, it's very powerful in a positive way. And so that's, that's, uh, that's the first, that's, that's the message that I want to impart um, with uh, to you tonight, the power of food to literally restore the light of Toho and the vessels of Toho to their uh, to their to their divine origin. So 
Food in summation is the paradigm of our service for God in this world. It, it literally represents the space of that connection. And thus, food is so central to Torah, to, uh, to Jewish ob- uh, um, observances, etc. Okay, that is it for tonight's session. Um, next, thank you. Yeah. Next session, we focus on specifically kosher from a spiritual perspective. I believe the title is Soul Foods. That's, uh, that's the title. All right, any questions or comments? Very deep. <laughs> so are we... I would love to do a deeper dive into Toho. It's powerful, but tonight we just had a dabble. Huh? Are you going to talk about it in the Kabbalah class? Uh, yes. Tohu will be covered. Tohu will be covered, yes. Are all the sessions here? All the sessions are here. Okay. Yeah. And different food each time. Can you imagine? Lovely. How do we top this? Yeah. All right. I would ask if you like the kugel all, but uh, no, you know. It's delicious. All right. Thank you. I really only care about the kugel. No, I'm kidding. We, <laughs> we know you really liked it, so we made sure. Oh. So oh, perfect. Good. You guys are so kind. Can we help clean up? Um. Yeah, we can bring. I mean, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs>